0: I think you, you all know a lot about glycolysis. What we have to focus on today is on the things that are different now, or what is the focus of this lecture? Okay. So, what extra things do we expect you all to know from glycolysis, other than the conversion of glucose to pyruvate? So, we shall be focusing on hemolysis, on the cause of defective glycolytic enzyme as, a, as one of the causes of hemolysis in patients with hemolytic anemia. Yeah? So that is what our focus will be on today's lecture. Now, I think this is the second or the third pathway that you are seeing in metabolism. We have seen the pentose phosphate pathway. Remember the pentose phosphate pathway, when you have a deficiency of that, you the children have manifestations of hemolysis or patients have hemolytic episodes. Similarly when you have glycolysis pathway defect in the RBC again patients have hemolytic anemia and we shall be explaining the cause of hemolysis in pentose phosphate defect is completely different from the cause of hemolysis in a glycolytic defect and we want you to focus on that and Finally, when a question is asked, and you have to be able to tell what is the biochemical basis of hemolysis, try to compare and contrast between pentose phosphate versus a glycolytic defect. Now when you study metabolic pathways, pay attention to irreversible steps, because these are usually the regulated steps, and if there are inhibitors, pay attention to those we are not going to look at too much about regulation because once you come back next term we have one entire module which is devoted to metabolism. So pay attention to the irreversible steps and any disorders. Now when you look at the disorder what we want you all to note is there is if there is a deficient enzyme pay attention, if it has a coenzyme pay attention to that the manifestations may be because of less amount of the product formed Or it can be because of accumulation of the substrate. Try to identify what are the findings, the other lab findings in this in the disorder, and what is the biochemical basis for the manifestations. Yeah. Always try to explain it to each other, and that will help you to get through um, the enzyme deficiencies. Now, when you think about glucose in the blood. Glucose is taken into specific tissues by a group of transporters known as glucose transporters or GLUT. So together they're called as GLUT. All of the glucose transporters do the same mechanism of um, transport of glucose and that is facilitated diffusion. That means there is transport along the gradient, along the concentration gradient, and no energy or no ATP is required. Now you've looked at the different GLUTs. I want you all to pay attention to the one in erythrocytes and that is GLUT1. GLUT4 is the one that is present in adipose tissue and muscle and is responsive to insulin. Okay. Now once glucose has entered into the cell it is trapped by phosphorylation. Now in all cells there is an enzyme called as a kinase, hexokinase in all cells. In the liver This kinase is slightly different, it is called as glucokinase. So glucokinase is specifically present in the liver. The other tissue that contains uh, glucokinase is the beta cells of the pancreas. So these are the only two organs which actually contain glucokinase. Whereas hexokinase is present in all other tissues. Now as a result of this reaction, what happens is glucose is phosphorylated and it is trapped within the cell and this prevents the exit of glucose from the cell. This reaction is irreversible and utilizes, the phosphate is coming from ATP. In other words, you're using one energy molecule or one ATP for the phosphorylation. Pay attention to the difference in kinetics of glucokinase versus hexokinase. So that's the graph that you have to pay attention to. Hexokinase is the blue line, and the red line is glucokinase. Hexokinase has a very low KM for glucose. In other words, if you translate it to affinity, it has a very high affinity for glucose. So hexokinase is active even when the blood glucose level is low, so that's, the, that's how you translate it. It has, so that's the VMAX. When you compare the VMAX of glucokinase and hexokinase, note that hexokinase has a lower VMAX compared to glucokinase. Try to compare the KM of glucokinase and hexokinase. The KM of glucokinase, which is present in the liver, is much higher. It's much higher, and note that it is much beyond the fasting blood glucose level. That means the liver does not phosphorylate glucose or does not utilize glucose when the blood glucose level is low. It only takes up glucose when the blood glucose level is high. So pay attention to the difference in kinetics. Now, hexokinase is present in all tissues, including your RBCs and the brain. That means they can take up glucose even when the blood glucose level is low. And they have a very high, this enzyme has a very high affinity for glucose. So once it's converted to glucose 6-phosphate, in the previous lecture we have seen its entry into the pentose phosphate pathway or the HMP shunt. Today we shall focus on the conversion of glucose 6-phosphate into pyruvate okay, and that is glycolysis. Now why is glycolysis important? Glyco- glycolysis is considered as a very versatile pathway because it can take place under aerobic as well as anaerobic. That means in the presence of oxygen or in the absence of oxygen. Also in tissues that have no mitochondria, one typical example is the red blood cells. Yeah? which do not have mitochondria glycolysis is the only source of atp for these cells so red blood cells require glycolysis to produce atp remember all the enzymes that we are studying today are in the cytosol that means in cells which do not have mitochondria glycolysis does not you know glycolysis can still take place and that's the only source of atp now if you think about the phases of glycolysis, we have just completed the first step, that is conversion of glucose into glucose 6-phosphate. It's going to be further converted into fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. The first stage, ATP is actually used, and this is called as the energy investment phase. Once it forms fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, it is going to be broken down into 3-carbon sugars, and as that is glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate and dihydroxystone phosphate, and both of these are in turn going to be converted into pyruvate. The last phase is where there is actually ATP production. So ATP production happens in the last phase. Now there are three reversible reactions of glycolysis. Remember two of them are in the first stage. Two of the irreversible. The last one is the last reaction of glycolysis. That is the formation of pyruvate. You need to pay attention to these three. Um, enzymes. So we've already seen the first reaction. Glucose is converted to glucose 6-phosphate. It's an irreversible reaction. So that's the first irreversible step of glycolysis. Now next what happens is it's isomerized. Glucose is isomerized to fructose 6-phosphate. Enzyme is an isomerase. The next reaction is super important. The second irreversible reaction of glycolysis catalyzed by Phosphofructokinase-1 or PFK-1. Note that the second ATP molecule is being used to phosphorylate fructose. So it forms fructose 1,6 bisphosphate. So on this slide, pay attention to the two irreversible reactions. This is PFK-1, it's considered as the regulated enzyme and is sometimes called as the committed enzyme of glycolysis, because once it goes through PFK1, it has to enter glycolysis, or fructose 1,6-bisphosphate has to, has to go through glycolysis. Two ATP molecules are used, in other words, this is the phase of energy investment. Now once you form fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, what happens next is aldolase will cleave. There are two isoforms, A and B. Aldolase is going to cleave it to form glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, which is a 3-carbon sugar, and dihydroxyacetone phosphate. Now dihydroxyacetone phosphate cannot undergo the next reactions of glycolysis, so it is converted into glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. This is an isomerase. Note that both reactions on this slide are reversible. So both of these are reversible reactions. Now from here on, remember at this point from one glucose molecule you have generated two molecules of glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. So anything that happens from this slide onwards, remember it's always two times. So two molecules of glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate will be finally converted into two molecules of pyruvate. Now, the next series of reactions is considered as stage 3, also called as energy generation phase. So we, have, we begin with glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. The first enzyme is a dehydrogenase, which converts it to form 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate. This is an important guy. 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate is an important compound. We call it an, a high-energy compound, a high-energy compound. Why do we call 1,3-BPG as a high-energy compound? On hydrolysis, it can directly phosphorylate ADP to form ATP. And that is the first reaction in which ATP is actually formed. Catalyzed by a phosphoglycerate kinase. Put a star here, okay, because this is an important step. It's the first example of substrate-level phosphorylation. Substrate-level phosphorylation means there is formation of ATP without involving the electron transport chain or without involving the mitochondria. Why is this important? Whenever there is no oxygen or whenever there is no mitochondria, this is one of the reactions that actually forms ATP. So under conditions of hypoxia, this this, this is the reaction that forms ATP. Or in conditions where there is no mitochondria or in cells with no mitochondria, Phosphoglycerate kinase is one of the enzymes that can directly form ATP without involvement of the mitochondria. The next reaction, so as a result of this, what happens is the phosphate group is transferred to ATP to form ATP. 3-phosphoglycerate is next converted to 2-phosphoglycerate. Note that all three enzymes are reversible on this slide. Okay. Now the next step is 2-phosphoglycerate is converted to the second important guy that is phosphoenol pyruvate. Phosphoenol pyruvate which is later converted to pyruvate. Phosphoenol pyruvate is the second high energy compound. So there are two high energy compounds 1-3 bisphosphoglycerate is the first one the second one is phosphoenol pyruvate. Phosphoenol pyruvate forms pyruvate and in the meanwhile it forms ATP-2. In other words, this is the second step of substrate-level phosphorylation, where phosphate group is directly given to ADP to form ATP. You do not need the mitochondria. Again, in conditions of hypoxia or low oxygen tension, this is, these, these two reactions are the only reactions that can actually form ATP directly. Okay? Now, on this slide, pay attention to pyruvate kinase, because that's an irreversible step. It's the third irreversible step of glycolysis. This is considered as a regulated step, and of course, there is a disorder associated. So never forget about pyruvate kinase. There are many important things happening in this reaction. ATP is formed. This is an irreversible reaction, and there is a disorder. We are going to look at the disorder in a little bit. Okay. So at this point, how many reversible reactions have you seen? We have seen three. First one is glucokinase or hexokinase, depending on the tissue. The second one is PFK1. And the third one is pyruvate kinase. So three reversible reactions. How many substrate level phosphorylation? Two. And name the enzymes to me? One is the same one, pyruvate kinase, the second one is phosphoglycerate kinase so any enzyme that uses atp is generally has this name kinase okay for those of you who are new to these enzymes now all the enzymes that you have studied till now so all 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 of those enzymes are present in the cytosol so we have formed pyruvate from glucose by glycolysis now if there is mitochondria So imagine this is a cell which is highly aerobic, has enough mitochondria, has enough oxygen. Pyruvate next is transported into the mitochondria and is converted into acetyl-CoA. But this requires oxygen and it requires mitochondria. PDH complex is the enzyme. Remember, PDH complex is within the mitochondria. In other words, you need to form acetyl-CoA, you require mitochondria, you also require enough of oxygen. You require a highly aerobic tissues. Now what we are going to concentrate on today is the conversion of pyruvate to lactate. In other words, what we are going to focus on is when there is no mitochondria or when there is lack of tissue oxygenation or less of oxygen, Now, under these conditions, pyruvate cannot enter into the mitochondria. Either there is absence of mitochondria or there is no oxygen. So then pyruvate is converted into lactate. Pyruvate is converted into lactate. The enzyme is lactate dehydrogenase. And this has an important job. We are going to look at it in more detail. Remember, lactate dehydrogenase is present in the cytosol. It is not within the mitochondria. So anytime you're thinking about a cell which does not have mitochondria, think about formation of lactate. Or it can be an actively contracting skeletal muscle which has very little oxygenation, which are also called as the white muscle fiber, you're thinking about formation of lactate. Okay? Whereas in the brain, in the cardiac muscle, which are highly aerobic, lactate formation is very minimal. That means whenever you have enough oxygen, pyruvate will be completely oxidized to acetyl-CoA and then to carbon dioxide and water. But when you do not have oxygen, the fate is the formation of lactate. Now once lactate is formed in these tissues, so I'm talking about the skeletal muscle, actively contracting skeletal muscle, or it could be the small cells which do not have mitochondria like the RBCs. Now the lactate formed in these tissues is considered as a dead end product. That means it has nowhere else to go. There is no further metabolism within these tissues. So then lactate exits these tissues, enters the blood and has to be transported to the liver. And this cycle is an important cycle that is cycling of lactate from RBCs and skeletal muscles to the liver. That cycle is called as the Cori cycle. We're going to describe about that in more detail but you understand why lactate cannot be further metabolized in these tissues so it needs to so the cells throw it out into the blood it is taken to the liver and in the liver it's converted back to glucose and that is the cori cycle so we've talked about the fates of pyruvate when there is enough oxygen and mitochondria acetyl coa and complete oxidation when there is no mitochondria or less of oxygen, it is forming lactate. The enzyme lactate dehydrogenase, remember, is a cytosolic enzyme. So we shall explain a little more about lactate dehydrogenase. So when the glycolysis takes place, remember, there was one NADH formed from the glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. You remember that? So the glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate dehydrogenase formed an NADH. Now, if glycolysis has to continue, what, what needs to happen is the NADH has to be reoxidized to NAD+, plus so that the NAD+, plus can be reused by glyceraldehyde, 3-phosphate dehydrogenase. Remember, if there is enough of oxygen, the NADH will go into the mitochondria and form ATP. But when there is no oxygen or when there is no mitochondria, the NADH is re-oxidized by the lactate dehydrogenase reaction. So if glycolysis has to proceed within the RBCs, you need to regenerate the NAD+. You need to reform the NAD+, so that you can provide NAD+, for the glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate dehydrogenase reaction. Now, during this reaction, NADH is going to be converted to NAD+, pyruvate is reduced to lactate. Note that this is a freely reversible reaction, but within the RBCs, the direction is towards the formation of lactate. And that's because you need to continue glycolysis. Within the skeletal muscle cell, the actively contracting skeletal muscle cell, also the the direction is towards the formation of lactate. That is, NADH is going to be uh, regenerate the NAD+, plus, or NADH is going to be reconverted back into NAD+. plus. Now, however, in tissues that are highly aerobic, like in the liver, so the lactate that is formed in the RBCs will be transported to the blood, go to the liver, remember liver is highly aerobic, in the liver lactate will be converted to pyruvate, so the opposite of the reaction takes place. And that's because it is a highly aerobic tissue. Now, the cardiac muscle is special because cardiac muscle is highly aerobic also. Lactate can be converted to pyruvate, and the cardiac muscle can actually use lactate as a fuel from the blood. Now, if you see, if you observe that the cardiac muscle is producing lactate, what do you think? So, cardiac muscle, we said, under normal conditions, it's highly aerobic. It it uses the lactate from the blood. But imagine you look at a cardiac muscle and you find that it is forming lactate. What does it mean? It's not getting enough oxygen. What disorder is this? Myocardial infarction. So when there is hypoxia, cardiac muscle hypoxia. So production of lactate in the cardiac muscle is not a good sign. It's a sign that the cardiac muscle is in big trouble. Okay? So lactate is generally used by the cardiac muscle but imagine the cardiac muscle starts producing lactate. That means there is not enough oxygenation. In other words, there is hypoxia of the cardiac muscle. And that is what I have tried to explain on the next slide. Yeah? So that's about the cardiac muscle. So if you find there is too much of lactate formation by the cardiac muscle, that means the cardiac muscle is in big trouble. It is hypoxic. Okay? Now, when you when you exercise yeah, typically there is increase in the blood lactate level and that's because the conditions are generally anaerobic if it is strenuous activity there is increase in lactate levels within the muscle and this will later exit and there is an increase in the blood lactate level. Now sometimes how many of you have got cramps if you do strenuous activity that is said to be due to excessive formation of lactic acid or a drop in the pH and accumulation of lactate within the muscle. Okay, so that is the explanation for cramps that occur during anaerobic exercise or during strenuous activity. Okay, so all of that we just explained now. You understand the NADH by NAD plus ratio? When you have too much of NADH, that means the tissue is? Is it aerobic or anaerobic? So when when the tissue has enough oxygen, what happens is NADH will enter into the electron transport chain, give off ATP. When the cell has too much of NADH, that means the cell is hypoxic, or there is less of oxygen. So when there is too much of NADH, there is more formation of lactate. It makes sense, right? So you're trying to continue glycolysis, you're trying to make ATP at least by glycolysis, because ETC... Cannot function at that point. Okay. So next, we shall look at the Cori cycle. So the Cori cycle is basically you're talking about two compounds, cycling of intermediates between two compounds, the two between two organs. One is lactate, the second one is glucose. So it basically involves RBC or the skeletal muscle. Note that it is RBC or the skeletal muscle forms the lactate. And when you're thinking about a skeletal muscle, it is an actively contracting skeletal muscle. So there is anaerobic glycolysis that we just described, and it forms lactate. Lactate cannot be utilized in these cells, either because of lack of oxygen or because of lack of mitochondria. Lactate enters into the blood, goes to the liver, and in the liver undergoes gluconeogenesis. So what are the organs involved in the Cori cycle? so it can be the rbc and the liver or skeletal muscle and the liver so it's basically the cycling of lactate and glucose from the rbc or actively contracting skeletal muscle and the liver okay these two are not components of the you know you can't say red blood cell and skeletal muscle are the organs involved in the cori cycle no it should be red liver has to be there it can be either the red blood cell or the skeletal muscle that is contracting. Okay. So we've talked about the key features. So three reversible reactions. PFK1 is highlighted because that is the regulated step. Now, substrate-level phosphorylations, there are two kinases. Phosphoglycerate kinase, which is reversible, and pyruvate kinase, which is irreversible. And we talked about the fates of the aerobic versus anaerobic. Now, for those of you who are interested in math and like to do how much of ATP is actually generated by anaerobic glycolysis, it's not much, but sometimes that's the only form of ATP. Typically, a hypoxic cell, this is the only route to form ATP in such cells. So if you think about the energetics, since there is no ATP from NADH because you're reconverting it back to NAD plus. You only have the two substrate level phosphorylation, so from two you get four ATP. And remember you have actually used two, that means only two by anaerobic glycolysis. This is sufficient for cells which do not have mitochondria like the RBCs, because RBCs are not metabolically active. So that amount of ATP is good enough. And in tissues that do not have oxygen, this is the only source of ATP when the conditions are anaerobic. Okay. So you can go back and try to compare. Tissues will be the brain, liver, cardiac muscle anaerobic will be actively contracting skeletal muscle and RBCs or cells without mitochondria energy yield is more we're going to talk about that later whereas anaerobic is only two it's very little end product is pyruvate which is converted to Acetyl-CoA, so that will be the further fate. Remember, the conversion to acetyl-CoA happens within the mitochondria. Anaerobic glycolysis end product is lactate. The further fate of pyruvate is the enzyme lactate dehydrogenase, which converts pyruvate into lactate. Yeah? So focus on the things that you did not know till now. Okay. Try to answer this question and we will move on and try to see why is glycolysis important for the CPR module so how many of you knew what what I was talking about till now only two people you don't remember okay it's a good refresher you know yeah. when you don't see something for some time okay so let's let's see the answer You want more time? Okay, look. Okay. I I need at least 410 responses. So the question is asking, people don't want to answer or people have left? That's good? Okay. Let's... Which of, so what? The, basically the question, okay, now I know you all don't remember what you read before. Yeah? So what the question is trying to ask you here is, enzymes that directly form ATP for RBC metabolism, we are testing you on the substrate-level phosphorylation reactions. So you can decode this as the substrate-level phosphorylation reactions that form ATP, that are the only sources for ATP in the RBCs, okay? Lactate dehydrogenase does not form ATP. PDH is not present in RBC because it is in the mitochondria. Glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase is an enzyme of pentose phosphate pathway. And when you think about the pentose phosphate pathway, you're not allowed to think about ATP. No (laughs) ATP is formed in the pentose phosphate, only glycolysis. Glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate dehydrogenase forms NADH, but within the RBC, it is converted back into NAD+, and there is no mitochondria to form ATP. So that will not be the answer. PFK1 actually uses ATP. It's like a negative. It uses ATP, and hexokinase also uses ATP. Okay. Lactate dehydrogenase, remember, is important because it can regenerate NAD+, for the continuation of glycolysis. Okay. Okay. Now in patients with arsenic poisoning, you find that glycolysis is inhibited and that's because arsenic is very similar to phosphate and it fools the enzyme. And typically what's happening is it inhibits glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate dehydrogenase and therefore it acts as an inhibitor of glycolysis. You'll be studying later that it also inhibits the TCA cycle, therefore it inhibits energy production, basically glycolysis and the TCA cycle in, or the PDH complex in most tissues. Okay. Now the second thing that you have to remember is the use of fluoride. How many of you have collected blood in these tubes? Um, typically the, you collect blood in, in the tubes with the gray colored caps, this is... These, these tubes contain fluoride. Now when you collect blood for analysis or for estimation of blood glucose levels what tends to happen is if you keep the blood for some time so imagine you've taken blood not in the fluoride tube but in a regular tube and you keep it for some time what happens is the RDCs, the WBCs, platelets all use the glucose in the blood and if you estimate the blood glucose level after some time you will find that the, the blood glucose level that is estimated is actually lower than the actual. Yeah? So it is lower than the actual blood glucose level. So you're getting, an error, um, you're getting an error, and that's because all the cells in the blood, the cellular components of the blood, are basically using the glucose for energy. And therefore what we tend to do is put the blood in fluoride-containing tubes. It inhibits enolase. And as a result, what happens is the blood glucose level, whatever you estimate, is the actual and there is no error. Yeah? And that's because you're inhibiting glycolysis in the cellular components of the blood, that is RBC, WBCs and the platelets. Yeah? So that's why we use these fluoride, con- the gray cap tubes, to avoid glycolysis or to inhibit glycolysis by the cellular components of the blood. Now what is the significance? So we learnt about the reactions of glycolysis so let's try to learn what is the significance of glycolysis. Now in tissues that are highly aerobic glucose can be converted to pyruvate and then into acetyl-CoA and then can be completely oxidized. Now however when the skeletal muscle is actively contracting then pyruvate is converted to lactate and glycolysis or anaerobic glycolysis becomes the only source of energy. Now, in today's lecture, we'll focus on this one in RBCs because you're doing the CPR module. Let's focus on the RBCs. What's the job of glycolysis in the RBCs? It's the major major source of energy. We have seen where is ATP actually formed. Now, the second important significance is the formation of 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate. 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate. You heard about this important compound two lectures ago, and that is 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate is not an intermediate of glycolysis, but is formed as a byproduct of glycolysis in the RBCs. So, 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate by a mutase is converted into 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate. Some books tend to give it as 2,3-diphosphoglycerate. Both of them are the same compound. Okay? Now once you form 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate in the RBCs 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate binds to hemoglobin within a central pocket especially the beta chains of hemoglobin and helps to unload oxygen. It helps to give off oxygen or unload oxygen. Now when you move from, a, from the sea level to a high altitude how does hemoglobin adapt and, or how do your RBCs adapt? So when you go to a high altitude, what happens is there is increased formation of 2,3-BPG, there is increased levels of 2,3-BPG in your RBCs, there is more binding of 2,3-BPG to the hemoglobin and therefore more delivery of oxygen in the tissues. Because remember, when you go to a high altitude, there is less of oxygen in the atmosphere or there is hypoxia. So in conditions of hypoxia, what happens is 2,3-BPG will be higher there's increased production of 2,3-BPG and this is going to facilitate more unloading of oxygen at the tissues. So you're trying to adapt to the situation of hypoxia and make sure there is enough oxygen delivery at the tissues. Okay, so that is about 2,3-BPG. Refer back to your hemoglobin and try to correlate hemoglobin with glycolysis and its importance in the RBCs. So we talked about glycolysis. Now there is a disorder associated, this is considered as the second most common cause of hemolytic anemia or the enzyme deficiency hemolytic anemia. The first, the most common cause enzyme deficiency resulting in hemolytic anemia is of course G6PD and pyruvate kinase deficiency is the second most important cause of enzyme deficiency hemolytic anemia. Now basically, when there is a defect in pyruvate kinase or a deficiency of pyruvate kinase, what what is going to happen to these RBCs is there is not enough ATP production because glycolysis is not effective or glycolysis is defective. So there is going to be less of ATP production. Now when there is less of ATP, what happens is one of the main functions of ATP in the cell is to maintain the osmotic balance or to make sure that the sodium-potassium ATPS is running. So when you have less of ATP within the RBCs, what happens is it is going to affect the sodium-potassium ATPS. So the sodium-potassium pump becomes ineffective. As a result, there is imbalance in the sodium-potassium levels between the cell and the RBCs, and this results, in other words, an osmotic imbalance which results in hemolytic anemia. Okay? So the cause of the hemolysis is less of ATP, because this is a defect in glycolysis, less of the sodium-potassium ATPs, and resulting in an osmotic imbalance and therefore hemolysis because of osmotic lysis. Yeah? So less of ATP, less of a, uh, sodium-potassium ATPs, resulting in osmotic imbalance. Now, you find that in patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency, what happens is, tell me what's going to happen to the 2, 3-BPG levels. You need to compare. There are two disorders. One is hexokinase deficiency and pyruvate kinase deficiency. So pyruvate kinase deficiency is at the bottom of the glycolysis. Yeah? It's almost the last step of glycolysis. Now, in patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency, there is higher levels of 2,3 BPG. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's because it's before the block. In hexokinase deficient, hexokinase deficiency can also cause hemolytic anemia. And in, if you compare and contrast pyruvate kinase to hexokinase deficiency, an important difference is in hexokinase deficiency, the 2,3 BPG levels are are low, because that's at the top, yeah, that's the first reaction of glycolysis. We talked about 2,3-BPG and pyruvate kinase and hexokinase deficiency, and remember 2,3-BPG levels are an associated finding, and that is not responsible for hemolysis in patients with pyruvate kinase or hexokinase deficiency. It's just an associated finding in pyruvate kinase or hexokinase deficiency. So when a patient has pyruvate kinase or hexokinase deficiency, less of ATP, less of sodium potassium ATP is resulting in osmotic imbalance. I want you to put 10 stars here, okay? (laughs) Because somehow you're not able to connect a glycolytic defect, so that is a defect in glycolysis, to the occurrence of hemolysis. You have to be able to connect that. So you have to be able to draw this out on a whiteboard, explain it to your friend. Okay? Now, RBC lysis is also seen in patients with G6PD deficiency. Why is that? That's because of accumulation of reactive oxygen species or hydrogen peroxide. I want you all to compare and contrast. Any other difference between pyruvate kinase versus G6PD? So the cause of hemolysis is completely different. What else? Where do you find a stressor? In yeah, the fava beans or sulfur drugs or primaquine, anti-malarial is only for G6PD. Pyruvate kinase deficiency hemolysis is continuous. There's no stressor. It's always present. Yeah, there is no. So that's how you differentiate when we give you a case about pyruvate kinase or, or a glycolytic defect versus uh, defect in the pentose phosphate pathway. How do you differentiate between pyruvate kinase versus hexokinase? You'd like to measure the 2,3-BPG levels within the RBCs, otherwise they are quite similar. You can't differentiate. And the cause of hemolysis is the same in both. Okay? So are we good there? Yeah? Okay. Now as you go through this module, you will be learning about metabolic acidosis and one of the commoner conditions of metabolic acidosis is called as lactic acidosis, where, what does the name tell you? There is too much formation of lactic acid. What conditions can cause too much formation of lactic acid? It could be increased NADH, By NAD plus ratio, in other words, anaerobic conditions, anaerobic conditions. Now, anaerobic conditions typically occur when there is a cardiac failure or a circulatory failure or circulatory shock. So in patients with circulatory failure, if you measure the blood lactate levels, you will find that there is increased blood lactate levels, and that's because the peripheral tissues are converting, or they are using anaerobic glycolysis for energy production, and there is too much formation of lactate in the peripheral tissues because of reduced oxygenation. Also, what is happening is there is a defect in the Cori cycle. The Cori cycle is defective. That means because of the shock, because of the circulatory collapse, what happens is the lactate that is formed in the periphery is not being transported in optimum amounts to the liver. Or it's not adequately transported to the liver to be converted back to glucose. In other words, there is a breakdown of the Cori cycle. That means lactate formed in the periphery accumulates in the periphery and takes a longer time to go to the liver because of the circulatory shock or because of the failure of the cardiac pump. Okay? So I think you've learnt about circulatory shock, right? Long time ago. Somewhere. Not not so not so familiar. Okay. So make sure that you know it before your next exam, okay? Now finally we look at the regulation of glycolysis. Now regulation of glycolysis, we are just looking at in one tissue. In the RBCs there is no regulation because it's it's not needed to be regulated, Very, very little amounts of ATP need to be produced in the RBCs. What I'm talking about here is the skeletal muscle. In the resting muscle you have high levels of ATP and that will inhibit glycolysis by inhibiting PFK1 yeah. Whereas when the muscle is contracting, there is higher levels of AMP, and this is going to activate PFK one. So this is in the muscle. In the liver, the regulation is much more complex. We are going to come back to it in the next step. Okay. Make sure you you go back and answer this. Okay. So, what is the hemolysis in the child due to? Okay, let me give you a little more time. Okay. So, the hemolysis in the child is because of so pyruvate kinase deficiency. There is less of ATP. This will translate to less functioning of the sodium potassium ATPase, and that is going to result in osmotic imbalance. So, it can be decreased ATP generation. The other the the cause of the hemolysis, the next response that you may find here is reduced functioning of the sodium-potassium ATPase or osmotic imbalance. All three answers are acceptable, and all of them are correct. 2, 3-BPG levels are high, but this is an associated finding in patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency. That is not responsible for the hemolysis. So you understand why did I tell you to mark it so many times? Because it's very confusing, okay? So don't mix it up on the exam. And, and in which patients do you have increased reactive oxygen species? In patients with G6PD. Okay? And make sure you can differentiate between the disorders of hemolysis. Okay? So in today, at the end of today's lecture, you've actually seen different causes of hemolysis. G6PD, pyruvate kinase, hexokinase, alpha-thalassemia, beta-thalassemia, and HBs. Did you realize that? Oh, as well as HBC. So you've seen so many different causes of hemolysis. You didn't realize that, yeah? yeah. So I want you all to realize that before the weekend so that you can sit together and put it all together. Yeah. So all of them were causes of hemolysis. Okay, so to answer this question, so we haven't talked about the conversion of lactate back into glucose but basically it's almost the same except for except for the irreversible reactions so you need to know for the conversion of lactate back into glucose you need to remember what enzymes are different and that will be your irreversible reactions and there are three three of them yes Glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase is not an irreversible. Okay, it's reversible. Okay? Phosphoglycerate kinase, and importance is substrate-level phosphorylation, but reversible. Thank you, and see you later. Yeah, thank you.